Do you like exclusive stuff? Yes, yes sir. sir. Do you like having access to your favourite podcast hosts in a way like never before? Yeah, absolutely. Do you wish you had access to our old Survivor Oz episodes that you can't find anywhere else online? Oh, yeah. If you answered yes to one, two or all of those questions, then get excited because the Oz Network is now on Patreon. <laughs> That's right, your favourite podcast has jumped on the Patreon bandwagon to enable a better listening experience for you, our listener. For more details, simply head to www.patreon.com forward slash oznetwork where you can sign up for as little as $3 a month. It'll be the best decision you make since that last bad one you made. You're listening to the Oz Movies Podcast, only on the Oz Network. Welcome to the Oz Network, as we are here to talk about the first half of Barbenheimer, or it'll be Oppenie uh, or something today, uh, because we're doing this backwards. We're talking about the biggest bomb of the year. Get it? Bomb of the year. Uh, Oppenheimer. Thank you. (laughs) Be here all week. Uh, Oppenheimer, Christopher Nolan's follow-up to The Very Bland Tenet. Uh, and he's back with Killian Murphy and Matt Damon and Emily Blunt and Robert Downey Jr.'s in this. Yeah. Uh, Rami Malik. <laughs> took me a little while for R- Rami Malik's in it. Uh, and a bomb is in this movie, a real bomb. Uh, only Christopher Nolan will actually set off a real nuke for the purpose of IMAX cameras. Uh, and we're going to bring you a spoiler-free review. We might as well just talk about the spoilers on this one. They bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. What? There you go. Spoilers. Uh, we're sorry if we spoiled this for anybody. Anybody's going to forgo seeing the movie because they know how it ends now. Uh, my name is Colin, and we have no idea what effect this podcast could have on the female reproductive system. Well, speak for yourself, Colin. Um, <laughs> and I'm just going to do this in Christopher Nolan style, so bear with me here for a second. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to turn the music up really loud so you couldn't hear the dialogue. Just, um, just. Made... I was going to say I heard no dialogue. There. Yeah, well then you've just seen a Christopher Nolan movie, so uh, well done. <laughs> and that sounds exactly like the score in Oppenheimer too. Send the bomb up. That's royalty free, by the way, uh, lawyers. Uh, it was uh, included on the roadcaster, so you can't sue me. <laughs> Yeah, just try and sue us, Nolan. We dare you. Yeah, are you gay? Are you gay like Tom Cruise? Get behind Tom Cruise and ram him in the butt. Get behind Cruise. Anyways, Oppenheimer, this movie is out now. And I think we uh, talked a little bit at the uh, end of, well, I guess that would have been, what, 24 hours ago when people heard us talking about uh, the end of Rush. It would have been. Uh, Our predictions that this movie and Barbie would have one of the biggest opening weekends of all time, and it went on to have the fourth biggest weekend opening, or the fourth biggest box office weekend ever in the United States. Um, As far as, like, top two movies grosses, I mean, I think this has to be top ever. Both these movies way exceeded expectations, but we're going to talk about the lesser of the two first, Oppenheimer, uh, the movie that only opened with $80 million. Oh, I thought you were spoiling Uh, your opinions already, because you've seen both. I haven't seen Barbie yet, by the way, at the time of recording this. (laughs) Again, when we we last talked about this, I'm like, oh, you know, I I thought I was going to see Oppenheimer, but I don't think I'm going to. Uh, And basically, I ended up seeing both of these movies within 24 hours of each other uh, through complete freak luck. Jamie basically said, hey, do you want to go see a movie tomorrow? I said, well, I mean, it's Oppenheimer and Barbie, and I expect her to pick Barbie. She goes, "Ah, I really can't stand Ryan Gosling. I'll see the bomb movie, as she called it. (laughs) (laughs) And then out of nowhere, my nephew, the exact same day that we're going to see Oppenheimer, says, hey, tomorrow would you like to go see Oppenheimer or Barbie or The Flash? And I said, well, I'm already going to see Oppenheimer, and The Flash isn't playing at the theater you want to go to. So he's like, all right, let's go see Barbie. So I went to go see Barbie with another grown uh, grown adult male. And I saw Oppenheimer with my wife, who slept through the majority of the movie. Uh, but uh, I didn't mind it. I, I I liked it. I don't think this is the greatest Christopher Nolan movie ever. Having said that, it is kind of, as much as it is very much a Christopher Nolan movie, I mean, there are, are, are huge similarities between this and several of the other movies he's made. But... This is really the first time he's ever done something that's not an original story. I mean, because Batman's kind of based on thing, but I mean, this is not this is a biopic. It is a true story, and I think that's one of the things that was kind of weird for me to watch because I'm like, well, I, I don't know how I feel about this movie. Then I'm like, well, I mean, this is not your typical Christopher Nolan movie because he's kind of basing it on fact and, and trying to stick very close to the fact. But 
Um, for the most part, I really enjoyed it. I definitely think even for three hours, probably could have trimmed 10, 15 minutes out of it. Um, there's about a 45 minute montage that closes the movie. And I don't know if you could have trimmed anything out of there. I'm still trying to wrap my head around half of what goes on, but, uh, it's a solid movie. It's better than Tenet. Thank God you said you're trying to work out what's going on because <laughs> I thought again, like I think it was a Tenet thing as well. I'm going, like, oh, am I just dumb? Am I just not getting things? And I read the synopsis <laughs> on Wikipedia afterwards. And I'm like, okay, that makes somewhat sense, but it's a very Christopher Nolan-y film. Um, yeah, look, I saw it like 12 hours ago. It's, I liked it, but it was, it wasn't odd. That's not the right word. I just, I think like it's one of these ones where you hear the hype and this is why I try to avoid reviews and I try to avoid news stories about movies because I buy into it. I drink the Kool-Aid and I'm like, oh, the greatest movie of the 21st century. Like, wow, this is going to be incredible. And just all I can't of, wait to see you rise a Skywalker. <laughs> you know, like, oh my God, graphic sex scenes with Florence, pew, pew, pew. <laughs> Like, I buy the hype and the Kool-Aid and I get slightly disappointed. I'll talk about that sex scene. It wasn't that bad, Colin. Jesus Christ, you need to see some sex. Um, But, I, I mean... I never said it was bad. I just said, you do see her naked in the movie. That's which, most of her screen time. Which, can I also just point out randomly on a tangent here while I'm on this? Because I was very I was like, very mad. It was a very full cinema. I, I splurged and spent the Australian version of IMAX, VMAX, um, <laughs> which was worth it. It was quite good. But I'm in, like, the back rear row there's only four seats all four are full this is half an hour into the movie some guy walks in literally as Cillian Murphy has met Florence Pugh at the party right they're about to have sex okay and he's walking in going like oh excuse me I'm in seat blah 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 and we're like uh no you're not chant these are our tickets oh these are my tickets and I'm like these are our tickets I think you're Oh, scusi, I'll go find somewhere else. And he's looking around, he's coming back, and he comes back, like, literally talking at the top of his voice, right? So I have no idea the dialogue that's happening. Oh, this is Barbie, right? And I'm like, look at the fucking screen, mate. This is not Barbie. Oh, scusi. It's like, you're half an hour late to the movie, and you're literally thinking this is Barbie. I didn't think Cillian Murphy looks anything like Margot Robbie, you cunt. Excuse my language. Um, anyway, I nearly missed Florence Pugh's boobs. That was my rant. <laughs> Didn't expect to use the C but word at 7.21am. I did eventually. Um, I've, been, I've been building that up. The Matilda's lost. <laughs> um, I nearly missed the boobs. It's been a difficult 12 hours. But yeah, like I think I'm glad we kind of have taken about 12 hours to do this because I needed to digest it because I'm the whole way home I'm thinking like, like, like what I feel it is similar to Tenet. Like I feel like it was kind of like you don't immediately walk out of the movies with a with a like wow or a uh. I didn't hate it, um, but it had some good elements to it. I think it was too long. I I think you could chop forty five mm-hmm. minutes out of this movie. I mean I know it's all very like fancy and stylish and all that sort of stuff. It looked great. We'll talk about all that sort of stuff. There was like one bomb scene. Come on, um, <laughs> but like it was a great scene. That's the best scene in the movie. But, yeah, I mean, the actors acting in this is great. Cillian Murphy, incredible. Literally, I did not know that half the people were in this movie. I'm like, Casey mm-hmm. Affleck, Rami Malek, <laughs> Gary Oldman. Like, I literally had no clue half these people were in this movie. I think I only realised Robert Downey Jr. was in this movie, I think, the day before when I double-checked that I had, like, got the right tickets and it said yeah. his name on the cut. I'm like, Robert Downey Jr.'s in this movie? <laughs> and then Matt Damon... I had no clue how these people were in this movie. So it was, yeah, I, I, I honestly, I'm doing a Survivor jury here, which I don't believe half the time. I haven't made my mind up what I'm doing with this movie yet. Uh, so we'll find out by the end of it. I, I mean, I've already made a mistake because I was about to talk about the, the movie of Nolan's this reminds me of, which is Dunkirk, which also is a true story. Yeah. But I mean, Dunkirk, a little bit different. He kind of took... He took three separate stories and it, it was obviously very fictionalized. I like kind of hear some real events. Um, this is like literally we're going to tell it like word for word the way it happened as close as we can get. Uh, but uh, yeah, Dunkirk is better. But I mean, the, the, the thing that they both have in common is this disjointed timeline that you don't realize is a disjointed timeline. until yeah. you get very late in the movie. Yeah. Uh, Cause there are, there are definitely parts where, I mean, even at three hours, you're like, okay, which time am I in? And there's something clever he does, which again, it takes you, till much later in the movie to figure out what it is, which is that the black and white scenes are not the scenes that take place earliest in the movie. Those are the scenes that take place in the middle. Yeah. So it's like, if you're watching color, it's either the first act or the last act. And if you're watching black and white, it's the middle act, which it does go all over the place. I mean, the movie does look great. The performances are incredible. I have no doubt in my mind this movie is going to 
get nominated for pretty much every Oscar there is. I mean, Killian Murphy, I'm saying it right now, like like he's well overdue for an Oscar nomination, but this has to be it for I him. Been he's been nominated amazing. before, not even nominated. Never even Jeez. been nominated, which is wow. crazy. Because he's one of these actors that like, you know, I, I, don't, I don't, I'm not going to say I've seen every single movie he's in, but he's one of these actors that like from way back when, you know, uh, Batman Begins and uh, what was the other one that he had uh, 28 Days Later, like his first two big breakthrough movies. I'm like, this guy is like so good. If there's a movie and he's in it, I want to watch it. And there's lots of times I've seen his movies just because he's in it. I mean, but this is a big deal because it's the first time he's had a leading role in like wow. a long time. And the first time Christopher Nolan's cast him a leading role and he's been in six Christopher Nolan movies. Uh, really? And, and, wow, jeez. Good for him. Yeah, I mean, three of those were Batman movies, but still. Uh, and we we talked all the way back in Dunkirk about how he stole that movie. I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah, great right. to see he that, that he's really getting a chance to shine. But uh, I mean, just on the performances alone, before we even talk about like the story and the, the format of the movie, uh, a lot of the other actors, like uh, kind of like you, I think I saw, you know, a couple of things, uh, pictures of Robert Downey Jr. And they're like, oh, can you believe that this was Iron Man? Uh, and it's like the next movie he made. Uh, and you don't you wouldn't recognize him. It would take you a while to recognize you watching this movie. But Robert Downey Jr., for as many complaints I have with him in the Marvel Universe, I love him in the Marvel Universe, but there's also times where I'm like, too much. Like, like tone it down a little. It's not his fault. It's just he doesn't need to be front and center for everything. Uh, this kind of is reminding people what a great actor he is. I mean, this is a guy who's one of the youngest Academy Award nominees ever for Best Actor. He's incredible. Matt Damon's incredible. Emily Blunt, I spent the majority of this movie thinking she's in this movie because they needed to cast another female role so that they didn't get labeled as this is, you know, a chauvinistic movie. And then she has one scene late in the movie where I'm like, whoa, that's why she's there? Yeah. And again, like you would think one scene in a movie, but I mean, actors have gotten nominated and this is maybe one of the best she's ever been. So I mean, great, great movie uh, as far as like the performances go. Uh, not always great necessarily for how the story is told, but uh, I mean, performances definitely make up for it. And yes, I, I never said Florence Pugh's sex scene was graphic. I said for the amount of screen time she has in this movie, she probably spends more than naked, which is 100% true. But half of those, half of that time she spends naked, she's literally just doing dialogue scenes naked, which is kind of the funny I thing. Think maybe I saw a headline. Uh, I think it's a controversial sex scene, but I think it's only controversial in India. Um, so I mean, <laughs> there's a couple. Yeah, like there's a couple of countries that have the only CGI in this entire movie. Apparently, is they had to CGI a dress on her in a few countries. Right. Oh, well, glad I didn't see this movie in India. Um, <laughs> outside of the bomb scene, that was the best bit. Um, but yeah, just quickly on Cillian Murphy, I didn't, I didn't realize that about him that i thought he'd been nominated for oscar and this is the first time i've realized that uh, uh, he's been around for a while so i don't want to say that he's the poor man's benedict cumberbatch i think benedict cumberbatch mm. is a poor man cillian murphy yeah 100 agree do they not look very similar uh this is the first mm -hmm. time i think watching this movie i'm like wow is this benedict cumberbatch and i like both i'm not i'm not taking that away i don't think that's a bad thing to call somebody a poor man cillian murphy that's a that's a compliment benedict if it, you're it is it is killian too it i have killian, to google it because cillian. we've i think we've both pronounced it both ways for several years <laughs> it's all right it's it's fine and I, i've told that story plenty of times before i think i remember when i saw batman begins with my friend back in the day and she was in love with him she's like oh my god he's so attractive yeah. and i'm like him like yeah <laughs> he's got a very weird face but i mean <laughs> what a beautiful face it is and just quickly but um i've got this up and i think we should talk about this uh throughout this because you'd mentioned the oscars and might have been i think we might have done it a little bit earlier last year when we looked at the potential nominees for the oscars like that's when we discovered brendan fraser and got very very excited but looking here on at least on the acting ones uh three actors are on the favorite list right now for Best Actor, obviously, for Cillian. Best Supporting Actor for Robert Downey Jr. And Emily Blunt is also on here as a uh, Best Supporting Actress. Ryan Gosling for Barbie? Is he that good in Barbie? You, you might be surprised. Oh, Again, God. I'm not a Ryan Gosling fan, and I was kind of surprised. One thing I just want to add here quickly, and I uh, can't wait for this film to come out. Actress in a leading role, Natalie Portman, May, December. Oh. Come on, Natalie. Get number two. Um, How many times she cry in there? <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, the acting in this movie, like the performances, and I kind of like that I didn't really know some of this because this has got a pretty stacked A-list cast. And I think that sometimes when you have that, it can kind of take away because you're expecting, you know, oh, that's this person, that's that person. Literally the scene when Rami Malek shows up, the, there were people around me who kind of almost gasped and were like, oh, it's Rami. Like you could actually hear them audibly say, oh, look, like it's, it's Rami Malek. Like people were shocked. And the thing with like Rami Malek, which I, I mean, I know you've got your thoughts on Rami Malek, but I think it's the way 
his character is in this movie, like he's got what about five scenes where he literally doesn't say a word. And I'm thinking, yeah. you've got Rami Malek, and you're just going to have him as a background character. This is like the weirdest cameo ever, but cool. But then, like, his scene at the end, he's like, wow, okay, this is pretty epic. Um, completely on board with you with Emily Blunt. Like, that was amazing. And I think Emily Blunt just had a way in this film where she, you, you, you know it's Emily Blunt, but you kind of forget it's Emily Blunt, yeah. if that makes sense. Um, like, her performance was that good. Uh, Casey Affleck, there he is. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, fr- I saw this a week ago and I already forgot he was in it. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, there, there, there was about, uh, there's a random guy in the Senate hearing who's like a pretty key character in Blue Bloods. I'm like, hey, he's from Blue Bloods. <laughs> um, the guy from uh, White Collar that's not um, the other guy, Matt, whatever not is Matt, Not Matt, Matt Bomber, the old guy. He was on the Senate committee. There's like, oh, spot the random actor. Gary Oldman's cameo, uh, which... Did you know that was Gary Oldman straight away? Because it's suited. Gary Oldman's in oh, this you movie. You didn't know. So he's Harry Truman. No. So uh, when. You, oh, okay. So when that scene came on, I'm like, is that Gary Oldman? And then like at the end of the movie, uh, well, actually, I looked on Wikipedia. I'm like, up, oh, it's it's Gary Oldman. Can I also just point out as well? Oh, Matt Damon. I will add because like I think Matt Damon is sort of similar to Robert Downey Jr. I think both are kind of almost more comedic now. You don't really often yeah. see them and in their roots. And yeah, Robert Downey Jr. was obviously renowned as a as a great actor before he went to drugs and then he kind of <laughs> saved his career with with iron man and and all of that sort of stuff but yeah he's got his roots in those sort of like those movies where he was very good back not that he wasn't good in iron man but you know what i mean and then even matt damon as well like it's been a while since he's really done one of these type of movies but um josh hartnett uh um, yeah he wasn't bad it, it took it took 30 minutes in this movie i'm like I swear that's Josh Hartnett, but it doesn't seem like Josh Hartnett. <laughs> yeah, I like. I honestly was like, "Wow, Pearl Harbor's Josh Hartnett has grown up, hasn't he?" You know, that's almost like Ryan Felipe showed up in this movie. You'd be like, "Well, <laughs> there he is." There's early two thousands Josh Hartnett. Um, but yeah, I think all the performances here were fantastic, and it really is a absolutely stacked cast. Like it really, really. The guy, um. I've, I've, what's his name? Um, he was Green Goblin in Amazing Spider-Man 2. Oh, Dean DeHane, yeah. Yeah, he's it. Uh, Freaking, um, oh, the Aussie guy, Jason Clark. He was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, like, yeah, so many people in this movie, but they also don't steal the screen time. Like Kenneth Branagh, yeah. of course Kenneth Branagh's in it. It's a freaking Chris Nolan film. <laughs> Michael Caine didn't show up, I was surprised, but um, mm-hmm. it's just, it's so stacked, but it's the Cillian Murphy show. He's amazing. And I don't yeah. like, it's, it's so early in the Oscar race. Like we've, this is probably the first one we've seen. You've seen Barbie, but I mean, looking who he's up against uh, in the favoritism for next year, um, not seen any of the other ones. I mean, he's up the, the, the five that apparently are rumored right now, Bradley Cooper for Maestro, Leonardo DiCaprio for killers in the flower moon, which is the one they're predicting. will get all the Oscars. Uh, the esteemed Coleman Domingo. Do we know who that is for Rustin? Uh, Paul Giamatti, who apparently is a favorite right now to win for mm-hmm. the holdovers, and then Cillian oh, that movie Murphy. looks great. Did you, have you seen the trailer I for that? I haven't seen the trailer for that. No, it's it's like the same guys who made like uh, Sideways, The Descendants, uh, Election, all that. Uh, but the trailer is done in the style of like a seventies or eighties trailer. Oh, cool! Uh, like the the graphics, the voiceover, everything. It it looks amazing. In a world, um. Yes, I mean... <laughs> More or less. Uh, but, like, honestly, like, uh, right now, uh, <laughs> having seen only Oppenheimer, I mean, he was fantastic. Absolutely yeah. a standout in this movie and thoroughly deserves to be a leading man more often after a performance like this. I mean, everybody knows who Robert Oppenheimer is, right? But mm. I, I don't think many people would, you know, draw the comparison as like, oh, that's a good impression. Like, I don't know if I've ever seen an interview with Oppenheimer before. But uh, uh, to, to me, when you're playing a real person, like... The issue that I have every single year, because it happens every single year, where somebody gets nominated just because they're playing somebody famous, is that the role itself is very thin. You know, like Bohemian Rhapsody and the Judy Garland movie and uh, even Kate Blanchett and the Aviator, like go, go on and on and on. I, you always have to separate and imagine if this role, if this was not a, a famous person that we knew, would this character have enough depth? Does this performance have enough depth that it deserves to get nominated? And that's what this was to me. Like, this was very similar to me, like, when we just watch Rush and um, uh, Daniel Bruce's performance in that. Like, if if you can remove that this is a real guy, you're just like, what a character and what a performance. Um, now, on the first hour of the movie, like, I feel like the first hour of this movie is a lot of Christopher Nolan just trying to build the character of J. Robert Oppenheimer to excess. 
Uh, there's a weird thing that happens with Kenneth Branagh where you wait for the end of the movie and you're like, so why was he trying to poison a person? Like, it's, it's bizarre. And I'm sure it's something that really happened. I'm sure it's something that Christopher Nolan in his mind is like, this is essential for you to understand the Oppenheimer character. But I'm like, we didn't need that. You could have literally dropped into this movie the day that he walks in and they're like, oh, somebody figured out how to split the atom. He's like, impossible. I'm going to go check the math, right? Start the movie there. And you don't need all this backstory about him in university and all that. Like there was just unnecessary stuff in that first hour where it's not going to change how good the performance is, but it is going to change how good the movie is. And especially in a movie where your timeline's all over the place, like I don't feel like you need the backstory of this guy to really care or understand everything that happens afterwards. So I, mean, I was saying you could cut 20 minutes out of this movie. I mean, if you want to include some of that first act stuff, go ahead. But really, you could almost cut the entire first act out. Now, is it is it unenjoyable? No. Is it is it bad filmmaking? No. It's just one of these things where does it need to be there? Or could this be the, the, the Nolan cut, like the Snyder cut, you yeah. know, where it's like, Snyder would have never released a four hour movie in theaters, but it's kind of cool to see all the extra stuff he would have put in. That's the way the first hour felt to me. 100%. But I think, correct yourself, Colin, uh, 2023, absolutely he would have released a four hour cut movie because this is where we're tracking. <laughs> because this yeah, is now. This, this is just this trend that we've talked about and everybody talks about is that movies now are almost standard at the three hour cut. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's, remember when Titanic came out? I'm sure you blocked it out of your memory, but like, in all seriousness, like, that was a big deal that that movie was three hours. That was like, yeah. a, oh, my God, everyone, like, you know, clear your schedule. This is three hours. And the Lord of the Rings movies, I remember how much they were talked about at the time. About These are three hours. Like, yeah, like that, that was a big deal that these movies were three hours long because that was back at a time mm-hmm. when movies were only really 90 minutes long. You know, they would yeah. double the length, whereas now... You see a movie, oh, only 120 minutes. Great. I've got time to get dinner afterwards. <laughs> like it's, you've got to clear, you do have to clear your day. So it's kind of standard, but yeah, it's, that's a good point you make that it's not that it's not enjoyable because I think the difference between this and Tenet is I spent the majority of Tenet literally working out what the fuck was going on and trying to listen because yeah, it is a thing that I just don't know if this is just a Christopher Nolan thing. I'm deliberately going to have music in every single scene and it's going to be about 17 decibels louder than the dialogue. So you really have to, maybe that's his way of making people focus on what's being said. Maybe it's a very clever movie making tactic that more people need to do. But I think the difference between this and Tenet is that I'm drawn onto every single conversation because yeah, I know who Oppenheimer is. I know that he's something to do with a nuclear bomb. Could I have told you all the stuff, anything in this movie? No, I still need to watch one of those 10 things that Oppenheimer told the truth with and, you know, videos from Watch Mojo or something. But that, I think, helps someone like me where I'm fascinated about how this all came about. I, I thought Oppenheimer was the guy who split the atom. So when that scene happens, when they're like, oh, somebody split the atom, I'm like, what? It wasn't Oppenheimer? Okay. So that draws you in, but it, it does just, yeah, on hindsight, you're like, you could get rid of that, you get rid of that, you get rid of that. And I think the the muddled timeline and the way it tells the storyline though it was done effectively i will say it's mm-hmm. not so convoluted like the payoff in this movie is a dialogue scene between oppenheimer and einstein where yeah. like it's sort of questioned multiple times and then all of a sudden it's revealed right at the end and that's done in a muddled timeline the robert downey jr character who you know there's a twist with him which Again, I'm sure any historian knows what's going to happen with that. I had no clue. So I'm like, oh, cool twist. And then ultimately the the goal of this movie is to get you to the point where you're going to see a nuclear bomb go off. And Mm. I'm drawn to all of that where you're like, wow, okay. But again, in hindsight, like we're no doubt going to be reviewing this or recapping this in what about like eight months time or so for the Oscars. And I think it's kind of going to one of those rewatch values where you're sort of like, oh, okay, am I going to sit through three hours of this again? But I think I could because, yeah, it's long. Yeah, you could cut a lot out. But as you said, it's still somewhat entertaining. So it's, it's a weird middle ground there, isn't it? But, yeah, that mm-hmm. first 45 minutes to an hour of the movie, I think, is where you can, you know, trim the fat of it, basically. Although that's the 45 minutes to an hour where Killian Murphy and uh, Florence Pugh are naked. Oh. <laughs> We've seen their indignity. <laughs> which, which, can I just add, I don't know if you're going to get to this, which I, I think some of the things I have with the story that were a bit of a honky issue was, uh, like... I guess you talk about that paint-by-numbers biopic, like, do you need to include him poisoning an apple? Yeah. Do we need to include the Florence Pugh storyline? Like, I get it was important to his character in some form, but I feel they kind of didn't stick the landing. And the one criticism I'm seeing with this film is people are criticizing the female characters in this movie. And in a weird way, 
I can kind of see it because there's only two. I mean, I know there's kind of a couple of side ones that you see, but it's only Florence Pugh and Emily Blunt. And for the most part, I feel, besides the one scene with Emily Blunt, you could cut them out. They, they have a line in this movie where they say Oppenheimer's a womanizer. I'm like, is he? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. two women in this film. That's that's probably about as many as Colin slept with. Um, But it's it's also like even the last act of this film, the sort of the Senate hearing committee, it's done in a way where it's really dramatic and I like sort of the twist with Robert Downey Jr. and then the Rami Malek speech. Like, I like all that stuff. I don't dislike it. But for the end result to be something so minor, like it's it's done in a way that you think like this is freaking, you know, what's in the box? Like it's kind of it's done in a way where you're thinking this is like the biggest thing ever. And I read the Wikipedia article after. I'm like, oh, so that legitimately was all that this was about. It was about he lost some accreditation. Cool. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and I think that's maybe the point Christopher Nolan would make is you could make a movie about the making of the bomb and everybody knows, okay, they made the bomb and then they, they, they delivered the bomb and uh, how many men went into the water and <laughs> uh, give quint speech from Jaws. Basically, That should have been my opening line <laughs> speech from Jaws. But, uh, but like, that's something that everybody already knows. And I think that a lot of people are going to this movie kind of expecting, well, that's going to be your climax. That's about the two hour mark is the bomb. Yeah. And you have enough seeds planted throughout that second. I actually really love the second act of this movie, which is the simplest to watch because it's the most direct. It's basically from the point of, yes, you've got the contract. You're going to build this bomb. How do we actually get there? I love the idea that we get to see them building this town. But I mean, the best part about that is the whole, uh, I guess, dilemma with secrecy. Like how much clearance should these people have? Uh, how much should even other departments? And I, I, I that's something that, I don't think most people would even think about is if you have these people working in this department, are they allowed to talk to the other people? And so that conflict was interesting to me. And really that's where the third act, you know, is sort of based around and why that's important. So I do get, you know, why he decided to tell that as the story above everything else. But then again, when you get to the end you're like, Oh, and that's the ending, you know, but I think where he makes up for it is by the whole disjointed uh, timeline, which I mean, this was a hundred percent, the same thing he did in Dunkirk. I mean, it took people, until probably the last half hour of Dunkirk to realize did it you're watching three Dunkirk stories in a different timelines. It did, yeah, because there was more of a surprise to that. Yeah. But I will say the way that, especially the last 45 minutes of this movie play out, uh, the editing of it is so different. And it it is, it's the thing that's the most of a challenge for the audience because he could have told that last half hour, 45 minutes, just as straight dialogue scenes, straight you know, regular dramatic filmmaking. But instead... He edits it like he's editing a trailer. He edits it like he's Mm. editing a montage. You know, this Mm -hmm. is the type of montage that usually plays um, like for the last five minutes of a movie, but it plays out for 45 minutes here. And that's really, you have to go in dedicated. I got to pay attention. I don't want to miss a line of dialogue. If you're not able to really pay attention to that, then you're probably going to zone out. But it's such a different tactic that brought so much more excitement to what otherwise, if you just played this out without that, dramatic you know editing style it would be pretty bland so i mean he he jazzed it up in a way without actually having to change the story or dramatize yeah that's a fantastic point i think that maybe though that's where this does hold up more on that first watch rather than watching it again because if you know that's coming i don't know how that holds up like again Mm -hmm. you can talk about this at the end if this is a oh i need to go see it again movie but yeah that's it it's a because what you're right like that last 45 minutes I'm I, again having not known what happened in Rob. Again, if you're an Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer fanboy, you've read the book. You know, similar, probably like Enzo Ferrari later this year. You know nothing about the guy, but I'm reading the book. I know about him, so it's going to be a different thing. With Rush yesterday, I knew all about mm-hmm. that. You didn't, so you, you're drawn to it in a different way. If I, you either know nothing about it, you know everything. So I knew nothing. So I don't know what happens at the end. I didn't know that Robert Downey Jr.'s character had that twist about him. So things like that are very, very fascinating, and you are drawn to it. It's just it, and I, I don't know if I necessarily expected the ending of this movie to be the bomb. Like I kind of assumed that that would be how it was. I, I maybe thought like it would end with them bombing Japan or something like that. I think the thing though that I don't know how you felt about it, whether it was a bit mis disjointed, is kind of the theme of this film about it. I don't say disjointed. That's not the right word. I just don't know if I know I feel about how it was executed was this whole notion of he's the father of the atomic bomb, but he created this world where the line is said, like I've basically ended the world by creating this. So you've yeah. kind of got the, him grappling with the, 
you know, whether this is a good or a bad thing. And that's obviously ultimately at the end of this movie, kind of how it takes a turn with he's done this, but is it the right thing? And I think that sometimes like you, I don't know how you, I overall feel about the character of Oppenheimer. Cause I don't know if I'm mm. meant to dislike this guy at any point. Cause he's not an unlikable guy in this movie. I don't know if he's meant to be, but it's sort of, is part of me meant to dislike this guy because he's created this terrible weapon, which right now could kill us all at any point as they kind of do explain. So yeah, I'm just, uh, it's, it's, I don't know how I feel about that being executed. If I, if I'm fully on board, maybe you can help sell me. You're good at this sometimes, but it's just, it's sort of like, it's, there's done in points. Like, like a weird thing is kind of, this is connected in a way which I think sort of maybe wasn't dug up as much as well is kind of the the Jewish roots of the Oppenheimer character. Sort of a lot of what's mm-hmm. alluded to is that why doesn't he help the Germans? Because he's in Europe. And it's like, why does he want to kind of come on board to help this project is because he doesn't want Hitler to do this first because he's Jewish yeah. and he's seeing what they're doing with the Jewish people during the war. I feel that kind of gets swept under the rug pretty quickly. I don't know. Like, I feel like there's some plot elements which I'd like to know a little bit more about. And this theme mm-hmm. of I've destroyed the world by creating this, I felt maybe wasn't fleshed out as much. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, well, I think this is the type of movie that almost requires repeat viewing. So really know mm-hmm. how you feel about everything. Uh, although I will say, as far as like liking the guy or not liking the guy, uh, to me, I think that's kind of the point of the movie. The same as like the movie doesn't really give you an answer as to what they're doing is right. You know, because I think everybody's going to have an opinion. You could say, oh, well, the bomb is what ended the war. But then you watch this movie and you're like, the war was already ended. And they they make a point of saying that in this movie, you know? Uh, And then there's uh, also the question of, uh, you know, when it comes to the Russian stuff later on, right? It's like, okay, well, somehow the Russians, somehow the Russians (laughs) got the bomb too. Uh, But it's like, okay, but you know, what you're doing in creating this bomb, you also stole that, you know, intelligence or whatever, not not literally stole intelligence, but you're borrowing from somebody else's work. Uh, The movie doesn't really present anything. It's it's, everything's in a gray area, you know? And even the way the movie ends, I kind of like that, that it's like, hey, did we just destroy the world or did we save the world? We don't really know. So, and I think the character is probably supposed to be the same thing. I mean, I will agree with you that Florence Pugh's character, I get it's It's something that's like, it's in a director's cut. I get it. But the only reason for that, I think, to be there is so that it it makes Emily Blunt's speech later on a little bit more effective. And again, you have to watch the movie to see why that that is important. But you probably also could achieve that another way, you know? Uh, That's another example of like, okay, well, there's things to not like about this guy, but then they present things where he seems to be the only one who has a bit of a conscience where he's like, hey, what we're doing, is it okay? Yeah, uh, yeah, good point. I mean, I'm not gonna, at the end of the day, I saw Florence Pugh naked. So I'm, you know, I was fine. And Cillian Murphy. Which is too. the way she wants you to see her. Free yeah. the nipple. <laughs> and e- an equal opportunity perf. Cillian Murphy. Although, uh, spread your legs, Cillian. Don't cross your legs in that scene. Come on. That's what I had to, when I mentioned to you again, Killian, Killian. Got Killian, to retrain. Sorry, sorry, sorry Killian. <laughs> but uh, that, that, that was one of the things when Jamie was saying, I found some of the nudity to be excessive. And I'm like, all right, would you have complained if you saw Killian Murphy's dong? And she's <laughs> he's too skinny. <laughs> yeah. like, what? <laughs> this um, is a thing where it's like, we talked about it before, where it's like, Jamie feels like if she could break a man, then he's not worth her time. Well, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not going to add any more comments. I feel like I'm very disparaging to your wife sometimes, and I, I apologize, <laughs> Colin. You have a very loving... 17 years, I believe, you've been together recently, so uh, congratulations. Well, known her that. 17. Well, sorry, sorry. She had to wear me down for a few True. years. True. It, took, it took, <laughs> took 16 years, and then finally it came with that. Um, I think somewhat of a weird comparison. You've not seen this movie um, but the, the closest I can kind of think of this is to the movie W. It's it's the difference there is though I don't think people went into watching a movie about George W. Bush wanting to like like the guy because mm. he was very unlikable by the time he was president. But I think what that movie does, as I've constantly said, is you do sympathize with George W. Bush in that movie. You know, Josh yeah. Brolin does it in a way where yeah, they're kind of going over the you know, paint by numbers. And that's very much a paint by numbers biopic almost of he was an alcoholic and he wanted to prove his father wrong. And, oh, should they invade Iraq and kind of all this kind of stuff. But it's still done in a way which it it makes you think a little bit more and you kind of feel for George W. Bush because, yeah, it's incredible. Seriously, we need to do that movie one day. I love that movie. But it's, yeah, it's done in a similar way in that way. But again, is Oppenheimer, judging on what I've read about this guy, 
he doesn't seem like he's an unlikable character in history, I guess, unless you're no. from Nagasaki or Hiroshima. Yeah. Um, but like, it's it, it, and that's I think where you talk about that gray area, which this movie is a. There's no clear like message of nuclear war is wrong because it is almost an unnecessary evil that you need a bomb like this. And that's one good mm-hmm. part of the movie where they're like, when they're talking about dropping this bomb on Japan, it's like, well, the Na- Hitler's dead. The Nazis have surrendered. Like, yeah. the fucking and the- Japan's already on the ropes. Japan <laughs> are doing their thing. Like, you know, like whatever. Um, and I like, and that's where I can relate it to W because obviously what's very famous about that Iraq war is people like Dick Cheney and, and those sort of people were very good at selling this war with Iraq. So there's a lot of very good like selling like, Hey, Pearl Harbor, remember that bomb Japan. Um, so yeah, I, it's, it's a movie that makes you think, and I've got a little brain. So therefore <laughs> I get out of this movie sometimes and I'm like, wow, am I smarter? Or I'm like, what's going on there? And how do I feel about it? <laughs> Yeah, the only thing I think really left to talk about is uh, the the bomb scene itself, the explosion, mm. which um, I've actually seen some negative opinions online, and it's both the fact that they filmed a real explosion. Now, this wasn't something where they filmed, like, a small cherry bomb going off and then just blew it up. Like, apparently, this was one of the biggest explosions. It was like, it's, it's almost the Spectre-level explosion uh, where it was borderline Guinness Book of World Records, miniature, but still. Uh, and there's people who are like, oh, that was disappointing. It should have been bigger. And I mean... I think people are saying like, oh, well, why not just use CGI to enhance it? But like, the problem is you're setting, even if you do the CGI, you're in real life, they're setting off a bomb in the middle of the desert where for at least for the first test, there's nothing to destroy. There's no way of CGIing that to make it look any bigger than what you see in the movie. So, I mean, I'm just kind of glad that they, we actually got it. But it, to me, the best part about it isn't the size of the explosion we see on screen or, or how much destruction causes it's the way that Nolan presents it because so much of it is just like the people's reactions. People who you're, you're seeing it from the point of view of people who have to have their backs to it. And then you see it from the point of view of people who are looking at it. Then people who are in like a bunker and you're really seeing it from all sides. And the buildup to this, one of the best things I think, even though this is not nearly Christopher Nolan's best movie, one of the best things Christopher Nolan has ever done is the way that he sold the tension of this where there's even that line in the trailer. You tell me there's a chance that the entire world may be destroyed. He goes, well, just a small chance, right? But like everything leading up to that, the, the looks on people's faces, the way the music cue is, all the conversations about what could or couldn't happen, whether or not this thing will even work, that's what made that so epic. And then you get a nice big explosion that you know is done for real on top of that. And you know, that's just that's just, you know, icing on the cake. We talked in twenty four season two, download now, that you know, that nuclear bomb scene, the shock and awe of it, and we'll see that in season six. And I've always had something about movies, TV shows, where if anything involving a nuclear bomb, it's kind of very fascinating. I do have a bit of a weird fascination with nuclear bombs, so uh, look out. They ever had a nuke go off on Blue Bloods? Not yet, um, but I'm sure it will. Um, Bill time. <laughs> third watch nuclear bomb episode, very <laughs> renowned. Um, but I think, like, it's there's just something about that, and I think everybody, you know, thinks about that with nuclear bombs. And, and I think what this scene does so well and... You know, they, they talk about, say, hydrogen bombs in this. And, of course, atom bombs, hydrogen bombs, they're different. And so I yeah. think kind of maybe what some people are expecting is this to be like a hydrogen bomb, which is, what, like 100 times bigger. Like nuclear bombs today are like 100, 200, 1,000 times bigger and more powerful than what we see in this movie. So I think maybe people go in with that anticipation that this mm-hmm. first ever nuclear blast wasn't as big as maybe people are anticipating because this is the first time they've done it. But I think, yeah, everything you said is so true and... I'm so glad I saw this. Like I spent the extra money to go see this on VMAX because this is where this movie is. Not just the big screen, but the sound. Holy fuck. Like everything and the way it's built up with this scene. And this is kind of spoilerish, but not really. I mean, it's a nuclear bomb goes off everyone. Like the way they sort of do this countdown. It's all, I'm pretty sure it's done in real time when they do this two minute countdown. You said the reactions, just the setup, everybody. You got a guy putting on sunscreen. Like, I mean, it's <laughs> some of this now looks stupid in hindsight. But again, right now, if we created something tomorrow that in a hundred years' time we know is not this, like, you don't know. This is what you've got to do. And just the way we were doing the same thing when Double R Seven launched. Exactly. That Noah, like, he's he's loose. What's he gonna do? <laughs> He'll get a date one day. Um, the way the explosion goes off, it's very visual and everything, and like. You're like, I'm like, oh, God, what's going off? It's going off. You're expecting this massive, like, explosion, this sound and everything. 
And you're kind of left in this moment where it's just, it's silent. And it's sort of just, it's the shock and awe of it. And then out of fucking nowhere, like you shit yourself because then there's like, you know it's coming, but like yeah. just the manner and the tension and everything that's going on. I don't know how long that scene goes for in real time. It might go for five minutes, 10 minutes, but you're so drawn to the scene. And that alone is worth the price of a mission to see this film on the big screen in a VMAX and IMAX, whatever you're seeing it in, because that is a cinematic experience set. That's why you go to the movies. That's why Tom Cruise was lining up on day one for this. Hopefully there's a Barbie scene like that. I don't know. But it just, it was epic. Um, And yeah, part of me thought maybe it was going to be more explosive and whatever. I'm kind of slightly there. But at the same time, I think it worked exactly how it was meant to. You're paying 30 bucks for a three-hour movie to see a five-minute explosion scene. And I'm on board with that. Uh, I I just want to say that uh, James Cameron spent how many months telling people if you miss one minute of Avatar because you have to go to the bathroom, uh, then you got to pay to see it again. This movie, I think it's justified because, A, you don't know when when you're going to miss something important, but, but like, you got to pay attention to this movie. Uh, but I'm proud of myself because that, I worried about this. I'm, yep. I'm, I, I don't have, I, I, don't, I wouldn't say I have a small bladder. I, I drink a lot of water. So <laughs> I have a very overactive bladder. And I didn't go to the bathroom once until I got home. <laughs> and yet Barbie... I went to the bathroom once during the movie, and then when the movie was over and the, the lineup of the bathroom was too big, I was like borderline peeing my pants going across the mall to actually find a bathroom. That's a matter of I, mean, I held it for this whole reason. I'm proud of myself. I don't have to pay to see this a second time, uh, but I held my bladder. Well, I actually was, because I, I have a small bladder, and I'm, I was very worried in this film. Like, I don't think I told you, but Mission Impossible, like, just as I was starting, like, the, the nightclub dance sequence, whatever it was, I'm like, fuck, I've got to go. So, like, I rushed out. I'm like, oh, they're just, they're, they're doing a montage of them dancing and some techno music. I like the song, but quickly rush out, come back in. Don't think I missed anything. Um, and I think even Indiana Jones, I, like, I've got a very small, but the older I get, the smaller it gets. So this one, I'm thinking like, fuck. So I went about three times before this movie started. I think this is three hours. I'm not going to be able to hold it. I held it. Didn't have to go once. So I was proud of myself too. Uh, I want to just give Jamie's uh small review before I get mine here. <laughs> um, again, she was not planning to see this movie. Uh, we decided to see it on uh, the, uh, it's called AVX, which is the alternative to IMAX here, which is a closer theater. Uh, but uh, we saw it and she decided not to see Barbie because she didn't like Ryan Gosling, but she was okay with seeing the Bond movie. 20 minutes into this movie, I look over and she's sound asleep. So I'm nudging her awake and I'm like, Jamie, these tickets cost $20 a pop for each of us. You're staying awake for this movie. You're the one who said you would come. I would have gone myself otherwise. Uh, the majority of the movie, I, I think there was a lot of parts where she was awake, but then I look and several times she's got her eyes closed and I'm like, Jamie, wake up. She goes, I am awake. I'm just, my eyes hurt. And I'm like, okay, but your head's nodding off. (laughs) Afterwards, she says, I will admit there were some very cool parts to that movie, but overall, I think that is one of the most boring movies I've ever seen in my life. Uh, So definitely not for Jamie. I mean, if if you're into this, if you're into historical dramas, fine. Um, Me, I'm, I would have said rent if there wasn't for the spectacle of this movie and the fact that it is very unique and, I kind of am compelled to see it again because there probably is a lot you miss watching it the first time around. Uh, in comparison to this and Tenet, I mean, Tenet, I'm pretty sure I even been that movie. I might've, uh, but I've never had the desire to rewatch Tenet again. Uh, in comparison to this to Dunkirk, Dunkirk, I was, oh, okay, well, I'd probably change that to a bin now. <laughs> I'd have to watch it again. And I never have the desire to do that. But in comparison to this and Dunkirk, I mean, Dunkirk, you know, every every single time I'll pick Dunkirk over this, but it is kind of in the middle. It is kind of like in rent territory, but the spectacle of the movie and just the fact that it's like it, it, there's a lot going on in this movie and you are at least compelled to watch it. I would give it a buy. Yeah, that was, that was my biggest thing as well. Like I just, I'm going like, is this a high rent? Is this a low buy? And that's kind of where like I'm saying like, oh, this movie, like literally talking about it. And I... <sighs> I think it's kind of similar to when we do like a TV show, like an episode where you're kind of in the middle, but maybe it just takes one scene, one sequence to nudge it yeah. over. And going back to what I was just saying about the cinematic experience, like it, and it like in all jokes aside, we'll be talking 10, 20 years about this whole Barbie Heimer sort of thing. And it, like, it's, it's fun. Like it's just, it's kind of, it's a two opposite movies and the hype around it. It's just, it's silly and it's, it's dumb, but it's also fun. Um, and mm. I think kind of that's part of this that we can say in, it's part in time that we were part of Barbieheimer. So, yeah, look, I, I'd give it a low buy. I think I would. I agree with you. Everything. Dunkirk's a way better film. I think two and a half out of the three Batmans that uh, Chris Nolan did are better films. Um, <laughs> it's better than Tenet. Um, but, yeah, like, it's. I don't know if I'd see it again, though. Like, I, obviously, when it comes out and we do it for Oscar month, it's, it's 
tracking for 12 Oscar nominations, according to Variety's list here. Uh, although it's only saying I think it could win like two of them. So, uh, you know, but it's, I don't know if I'd pay to go see this again. That's the only thing. Like maybe just for that one scene, I'll, I'll pay like $30. I'll track like, what time's that in the movie. I'll walk in like that stupid asshole, <laughs> like, you know, halfway through to see the bomb scene again. Is this, is this Barbie? <laughs> Boo. I just want somebody now on Tuesday. I want to see Barbie. Where's the bomb? This is an Oppenheimer. Yeah. <laughs> and you got some loser walking in going like, is this Gran Turismo? Piss off, mate. You're <laughs> too early. Um, but yeah, uh, glad I experienced it the way I experienced it. Uh, and, I want to kiss Killian on the lips. Yeah. Who, who doesn't? It's a man. Um, He's on the Bond so, shortlist. I don't know about him as Bond, though. No. Well, he was. I mean, the reason he's in all these Christopher Nolan movies is because uh, he, was, he wasn't Christopher Nolan's first pick. But when they were auditioning actors for Batman Begins, he was right up there. And it ultimately came down to he's not physically, as Jamie would say, you look like you could break him compared to Christian Bale. Uh, but Nolan loved him so much that he basically said, I'm making this guy Scarecrow and I'll put him in every single movie. So, I mean, this guy almost was Batman at least. Which, and I'm seeing a lot of whispers in the Bond community now that this movie's out. I don't know if you've seen all the press around why Christopher Nolan has to do the next Bond film. So kind of yeah. with this film, every, and like, I don't think Christopher Nolan would be the worst choice for a Bond director, but I mean, he might well, need to not go as wanky and arty. And I'd actually like to hear, you know, I don't want to hear like, Bond, James Bond is like, Bond, James Bond. You might have to turn the volume down a little bit, Christopher. In a weird kind of swap of roles here. I mean, we already know that Nolan was at least approached for Spectre. And he basically, when we watched Tenet, we said, Tenet basically feels like Christopher Nolan wanted to do a Bond movie and then he regretted turning it down. So he made Tenet. But uh, Sam Mendes was the first guy attached to do Oppenheimer before Christopher Nolan came on. So there you go. maybe they're just going to swap roles and Sam Mendes will do Oppenheimer 2 and uh, Nolan can do the next Bond. Uh, but uh, next thing we have coming up, uh, I get, I don't know by the time uh, we get to our next movie month, if we'll already see Bar- Barbie will be the next review. Yeah, you no, already got be. tickets, you I, said, I, right? I, bought, I bought my tickets yesterday, so um, I'm seeing it on Tuesday. So uh, you and I will discuss our schedule off air, air but hopefully we can do that Tuesday. Um, but yeah, so we'll probably get that out just ahead of uh, Jack and Jill, um, which <laughs> I'm excited Bad for. Bad movie month. But um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm looking at you've, you've seen it. I uh, don't know if you yeah. want to give anything away, but um, yeah, again, look, this is a movie that six months ago I don't think I would have seen. Uh, but I think mm-hmm. this is, I might say, maybe the best advertised movie I've ever come across because literally the advertising campaign of this film has swayed me. And clearly, if you sway Ben Waterworth, it's a good <laughs> advertising campaign. But in seriousness, like I know a lot of people who have said exactly the same thing. Like, yeah, like I'm never going to see a movie called Barbie, but just mm-hmm. the way they have promoted this film is brilliant. And I think that yeah. that is helping it uh, become such a success. So I'm looking forward to seeing it. The only thing I'll say, if because if there is anybody who wants to see this movie like Ben before we review it, um, remove the name Barbie from it, and you wouldn't say this is a Barbie movie. I mean, obviously, Barbie is a character in it. They reference a lot of Barbie things. But this, to me, was not a movie about a line of toys. This was almost a parody of, like, the toy community. <laughs> the, the community. The toy, the toy industry, community. I guess you would. The toy community. <laughs> Hello to all our toy community uh, listeners today. <laughs> Uh, but uh, yeah, the toy industry and everything. So it's 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 definitely. I mean, you could kind of tell from the you know advertisements what this movie is going to be like. But uh, it's it's not what you'd expect. Which is why I was okay going to see this movie with another grown adult male. Uh, Did he offer to pay you money <laughs> to uh, like talk about it afterwards? Or no, no, he didn't. <laughs> so I don't know. You get the money offers. I don't get it. I'm a bit concerned when young boys ask me for money. It's usually the other way around. <laughs> Pence like, yes, finally. <laughs> you want to pay me to do um, that? Oh. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we'll have a Barbie review. And then, as Ben said, Bad Movie Month, they'll be starting with uh, Jack and Jill and uh, Howard the Duck and Showgirls. And I always forget one. Freddie got fingered. Freddie got fingered. That's right. Uh, so th- those will be nice, easy movies to cover. Because. Uh, <laughs> We'll have to pay less attention than we did Oppenheimer. We're only <laughs> so doing that. We're doing we're doing hour recaps, people. So yeah, um, we we stick it to an hour. Uh, uh, we stick it to one third the length of Oppenheimer. <laughs> that's <laughs> a, that's our rule going forward. Yep, the Oppenheimer. <laughs> if we rule. can't do this. If we can't do this in thirty three percent of Oppenheimer's runtime, then we don't deserve to be on the air yeah, anymore. We're still about Jack and Jill for three hours. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hey, first we've got to talk about Jack and then Jill. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> in the be- first half, Jack. Is he really the best <laughs> character in this movie? In the second half, Jill. Does Adam Sandler really portray a woman correctly? And then we need to do Jack versus Jill, Donna <laughs> Justice. Uh, the whole Jack and Jill universe to do. <laughs> Jack and Jill Furious 2, Tokyo Drift. <laughs> uh, uh, I was trying to figure out a Barbenheimer one, but Jack and Jill. Jack, Jack and Jill and Heimer. Jackal? Jackal. Jack, there we Jack, go. The Jackal. We're doing the Jackal. Good movie. Jackal and Hyde. Barbenheimer and... Hey, Jacqueline Hyde. <laughs> That's oh, the buttons. Where's my you working? I turned it down. There we, there we go. go. Thank you. Uh, so stay tuned for the end of this if you want to hear how to subscribe to us, but you're probably already subscribed to us and listening to us. Um, my name is Colin, the man who moved the earth. My name is Ben. Since when are you British? Thanks for downloading this episode of the Oz Network. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to the podcast by Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or by copying our RSS feed into your preferred podcast provider. And while you're there, please drop us a rating and leave us some feedback. You can also be sure to stay up to date with all the latest episodes and happenings from the show, as well as finding out how you can get involved in upcoming episodes by following our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, as well as getting everything you need under one roof at theoznetwork.net. Thanks again for listening and we'll speak to you next time. like exclusive stuff yes sir do you like having access to your favorite podcast hosts in a way like never before yeah absolutely do you wish you had access to our old survivor oz episodes that you can't find anywhere else online oh yeah if you answered yes to one two or all of those questions then get excited because the oz network is now on patreon That's right, your favourite podcast has jumped on the Patreon bandwagon to enable a better listening experience for you, our listener. For more details, simply head to www.patreon.com forward slash oznetwork where you can sign up for as little as $3 a month. It'll be the best decision you make since that last bad one you made.